for us, this $165 million, it's so nothing. The entire financial system of the United States is being subsidized by taxpayers. Now, I'm going to say that might be the right thing to do. I'm not a populist. I'm not saying that's horrible. But I think it's politically really, really dangerous. Hello and welcome to NPR's Planet Money. I'm David Kestenbaum. And I'm Laura Conaway. This is Monday, April 13th, and that was Adam Davidson and Alex Bloomberg you just heard at the top of the podcast. They were on Meet the Press this weekend. Hey, David, did you do your taxes yet? Uh, I did. I filed electronically. Have you, I kind of miss the days when people used to file by paper. Have you ever gone to... Uh, like the post office. Yeah, it's like a whole parade down there. Yeah, and there's someone outside, like, and people just handing them out the window of their cars. It's like, a, it's a big event. Yeah, it's big fun. It used to actually be one of my favorite things to do is to get on my scooter, my uh, my kick scooter, and ride down to Borough Hall here in Brooklyn and just drop them off. This is my <laughs> midnight on- run. <laughs> Uh, on today's show, we are going to take a second look, I can't believe this, at the fascinating rule of accounting called Mark to Market. We're also going to talk about this whole idea of too big to fail. And we're going to hear from a listener who's living in this kind of cool, closed economy. But first, the Planet Money indicator. It's $77 billion. Yep, that is the total amount, according to the New York Times story this morning, that the U.S. government might have to kick in if it pushes General Motors into bankruptcy. Just to be clear, David, this $77 billion to General Motors, we're talking about loans, right? Right. So, you know, you think bankruptcy makes a lot of sense. This is great. We're going to renegotiate with the workers. It'll it'll sell off Hummer and the brands that aren't working. And the company gets to start clean. But, you know, the truth about bankruptcy is that in order for GM just to keep operating in bankruptcy, it needs something called dip financing, which we've talked about on this program before. But it's basically uh, a loan just to keep everything going until the company is profitable again. Uh, The details weren't spelled out in that story, but it looks like that role is going to fall to the U.S. government. So if you're one of the people out there who's thinking, good, bankruptcy, now the government doesn't have to bail out the auto manufacturers anymore. Well, this bankruptcy is actually going to require more money from the government. They're in for $13.4 billion with GM so far. And the bankruptcy could require a way larger loan of up to $77 billion. According to that story. So we'll see what happens there. Uh, a few podcasts back, we did a segment about mark-to-market accounting, right? Yeah, it's this rule that so many banks have been complaining about. Why don't you explain it, actually? The rule is actually called fair value accounting. And it says that wherever possible, if you're a bank and you have some mortgage-backed security, when you write down what that's worth, you have to go look out in the market and see what it's selling for. You have to use the market price. You have to mark it down at the market price. That's what it says, whenever possible. Yeah, except that the banks these days are holding a lot of things that aren't trading. They've got these assets that literally just about nobody wants to buy. And they've been saying that they need a lot more flexibility because there is no market. If they had to put a value on them right now, some of these assets, the number would be zero. So this is why the Financial Accounting Standings Board, FASB, remember that FASB, uh, decided to cut banks some slack this month. And FASB offered clarification uh, explaining 
in more detail the terms that govern when you as a bank have to use mark-to-market and when you don't. And the change is generally interpreted as giving the banks extra slack. So the banks were happy with it. Uh, But no sooner did we explain this than several listeners pointed out that the last time they'd heard of mark-to-market accounting before this crisis was back in the 1990s with a little energy company called Enron. Yeah, and you guys are absolutely right out there, especially my friend Jack, who went and dug up this whole thing about Enron and mark-to-market accounting. Enron used mark-to-market accounting to create these just enormaloid values for energy contracts. Last week, I sat down with an investigative reporter who wrote one of the very first articles. It was so exciting to me. He wrote it back in 2000. He was one of the very first people to look at what Enron was doing and say, there's something about this little accounting rule no one's talking about mark to market. The reporter's name is Jonathan Weil. At the time, he was working at the Wall Street Journal, and he says somebody just called him up and tipped him off that Enron was using mark to market accounting quite creatively to make its money. The FASB at that time basically let Enron and the industry write the accounting rules so that they could take energy contracts or electricity contracts, which had never been before treated like financial instruments, and treat them like financial instruments. And that's important because it let them recognize immediate upfront profits on their earning statements. Uh, Can we give an example of that? So let's say that I'm Enron and I go uh, sell a 25-year electricity contract to some company uh, or to, say, the state of California, which the buyer wants to lock in their prices for the future. Enron locks in um, basically a customer for the next 25 years. Okay. And instead of recognizing – now, if you look at these contracts, they're not very freely traded. So there's no market that you can really go to except possibly for Enron Online at that point in time, which was a website that Enron operated where they basically created these markets and quoted the prices. But even there, you might not have an active quoted price that you could rely on to figure out what is the value of this contract. So what they'll do then is they'll say, well, to figure out the value of the contract, we'll estimate what our profits are for the next 25 years and take some discount rate to reflect the present value of, of future earnings. And then we'll just basically book the present value of all that future income today. To the extent that re, you know reflected profit, they would record that as earnings. And then the stock market would look at that and say, ooh, you should trade at 80 times earnings, your stock. And this is the incentive. And then from that 80 times earnings for the stock, which presumably you know they were, their stock was going gangbusters for the time, the CEO and the CFO would all claim bonuses as a percentage of these phantom earnings that they had created out of their mark-to-market profits. So we're talking here about a complete fiction that was made possible by mark-to-market accounting. Mark-to-market accounting works great when you've got good marks and when you can actually have reasonable reflections of what market values are. And nobody in the financial industry or in the energy industry back then seems to ever object to mark-to-market gains uh, when things are going well. What they object to are when you have mark-to-market losses and you have to use the same powers of estimation to figure out what certain assets or liabilities are worth. And then if you're going to be honest about those estimates, what they don't like is when they turn into losses. 
So, Laura, it's interesting because everyone now, you know, you hear a lot from accountants saying, no, no, we need to keep mark-to-market in place. We need to have mark-to-market accounting. Uh, and yet there was an example where even with that in place, you know, a company was able to, to figure out a, a way to manipulate it to their advantage. Yeah, and to really famously get the best of it, at least until several of them went to jail. Now, Wilde works now as a financial columnist for Bloomberg, and so he gets to troll around inside opinion, I think, fairly freely. So I asked for his opinion on the change in mark-to-market this month, and I just asked him straight up. Is it good or bad that the Financial Accounting Standards Board is cutting banks some slack on mark-to-market accounting? It's horrific because what it tells you is that, um, A, the board is going to be – is basically given into political pressure so that now there will be um, – this coloring of any decisions they ever reach in the future. So you don't know if they're making uh, policies for how companies should recognize earnings and assets and the like based upon – you don't know if it's the if it's the accountants talking or if you don't know if it's you know the government talking and the bankers talking using their the accountants' lips. And they let Congress intimidate them into passing these new rules uh, that said that um, you if you have losses – on certain types of securities, you can delay recognizing them on your income, income statement effectively uh, indefinitely. Now, look, there is a counter argument here when it comes to the banks in our okay. current situation. Uh, and I'll just, I'll just make it. I'm going to put my banker hat on here. And the argument goes that, look, when there is no market, when really the stuff is not trading, except when someone is really forced to sell it, then the market just is not working. It is broken. I mean, imagine walking into the floor of uh, like a stock exchange and you say, walk into the trading pit and you say, hey, I want to sell this. But the trading pit is empty. You're yep. the, there's no one screaming, no waving of hands. There's, you're the only person there. And one guy looks over to you and says, all right, I'll give you a buck for it. <laughs> you know, the argument sell. is that is a broken right. market. It is not giving a fair value. So I, as a bank, say, look, this thing I'm selling – uh, no one wants to buy it, but there are houses inside this mortgage-backed security, and there are people paying their mortgages. And even if no investor ever wants to buy this thing from me, I don't care. If I just hold on to it, I am going to get more money back than the $1 that guy is offering me right now. So the banks say, why should we have to mark this to market? In fact, the accounting rules acknowledge this. They say, if a market isn't working, you don't have to use the mark-to-market value. So we just want the appropriate flexibility about when we can do this, we want it to be clear. We want the Accounting Standards Board to make that clear. And by the way, look, we have auditors looking over our shoulder. They are really tough folks. You know, they don't yeah, let us David, get away with it. David, David Banker, David Kestenbaum here. <laughs> okay, I'll come back. Here's the problem. <laughs> Jonathan Weil says that those auditors haven't been so reliable. They weren't reliable during Enron. And he's saying that neither the auditors nor really a whole bunch of other people are very reliable right now. If everybody... Uh did their fair values on their assets and liabilities fairly, we wouldn't have a problem. But human beings being what they are, and particularly in years when uh, really large fair value gains can result in large fair values of bonuses, then the incentive is to constantly be putting your thumb on the scales. If you don't have checks and balances around the system, if the companies don't have you know, control over uh, the people who are making the estimates and the regulators are never going to do anything and the auditors just take their fees and never enforce anything, then things get crazy. David, one more thing from Jonathan Weil, which I thought was just an interesting way to put it. He says that we're using accounting rules almost like kind of like an economic development policy right now. 
You mean something that you can kind of tweak and see how it works till you get the right result? Exactly. Result. Just going yeah. for the best that you can get, basically. And I'm going to link to his column on the blog. He's, he's a really good read over there at Bloomberg. It's npr.org slash money. And, you know, on the blog, we have been asking people out there for months to go ahead and check in with us about how you're seeing the economy, how you're seeing it for the good, how you're seeing it for the bad. Today, we're going to get the view from a place I've never been but absolutely should go probably starting tomorrow, Nantucket. And we're going to get that with a little help from our own Caitlin Kinney. Hey, Caitlin. Hey, guys. So we got a letter from a listener named Bob Barsanti. He's a teacher in Massachusetts. He lives on Nantucket Island primarily, but he's working in the Berkshires right now. So he goes to the island for weekends and during the summer. But he's been a resident of Nantucket for about 23 years now. So he's truly a local and he knows the place really well. He says that the best way to find out what's going on on the island is to look at the classifieds. Like pick up the newspaper at the coffee shop? Right, like where they set, where they advertise jobs and cars and that kind of stuff. And Bob says when he was younger, his grandfather used to say, there's a ton of news in the newspaper. It's not just all in the articles. So he thinks it's a great way to figure out what's going on. He happened to mention it to one of his classes a few years ago. They took it on as a project. Lately, it's become a little bit of an obsession. But Bob says it's really the best place to look. They don't have a Craigslist on Nantucket, and they've only got one paper. So if you want to know, you should look at the classifieds. The classifieds are going really weird. Uh, One of the things that's going on is that normally right around now, everyone on Nantucket's hiring. They're hiring landscapers. They're hiring waitresses. They're hiring counterhelp. No one's doing that. Um, normally, right now, the classified ad has 40 or so in the paper. In 2005, they had 74 ads. This year, there are eight. Um, another thing that the classified show is year-round rentals. When I first came to Nantucket in the late 80s, year-round rentals were rumors. You know, you'd hear somebody says that they're looking to put somebody in an apartment for the year, and everyone would run to that place. But now, they're everywhere. Um, Again, 2005, there were eight in the paper. And now, in 2009, there's 25. Caitlin, what's a house go for on Nantucket? Well, the thing about these year-round rentals is that typically... Before, when we were in a boom time and people could afford to spend the money, these are houses and apartments that you could rent for about $3,000 a week in the summer. I mean, That's almost what I pay in Brooklyn, of course. They could fetch huge, huge bucks. But the thing is, people can't afford to shell out that money right now. So people who own these homes and, you know, maybe perhaps have lost a job themselves and are really kind of worried about money are trying to rent them out year-round and just get the money whenever they can and not try to demand those same high prices. So you're happy to have anything in January versus maybe not so much in August. Right. Any help you can get. And Bob says there's a lot of numbers you can look at, you know, the number of houses, number of jobs. But also for him, these kind of things have certainly started to hit home. A good friend of mine is a baker at Something Natural. And he's 45, 46 years old. He's got kids off island in school. He hasn't worked in his bakery for 15 years until this year. And he basically let off half his crew and spent the time baking all winter. Um, The other stories that come up is a whole bunch of contractors who don't have anything to do, and these are top-level finished car contractors. These are guys who get their work in woodworking today and this old house, and everybody does that. And suddenly they're available for, can you fix my front porch? Sure, absolutely. 
Right. So, so they're taking work whenever they can. They're taking whatever work they can find. Um, and so there's a lot of people on island who are doing the Yankee thing and saying, oh, yeah, we're fine. Oh, yeah, we're fine. But all the way around, if you start looking a little more closely, there's a lot of economizing. And there are a lot of people looking around saying, how long do I stay? When do I leave? When do I move off? Ah, that stiff upper lip. I'm from Connecticut. I know it very well. Uh, Bob sent us some pictures of Nantucket and of the classifieds. You can check them out on our blog, npr.org slash money. Hey, thanks, Caitlin. Thanks, guys. Finally today, we have an interview for you with the authors of, I'm going to go out on a limb here and call this a very, very important book. Uh, It is ranked number 117,584 on Amazon. It describes part of the very crisis we are in now. And the title of this mega seller is Too Big to Fail, The Hazards of Bank Bailouts. And I know you out there are thinking, wow, somebody got their act together and they wrote a very quick book to, you know, capitalize on on the crisis. It's an instant book kind of thing. Yeah, right. But here's the punchline. The book was written in 2004 before any of this happened. And you, David Kestenbaum, have interviewed the authors. I did. Uh, they are Gary Stern, president of the Federal Reserve Bank of Minneapolis, and Ron Feldman, who's off also at the Minneapolis Fed. And they were in town for a talk at the Brookings Institution. And I started by asking Ron, I said, you know, you've been warning about banks getting too big to fail and how the government might have to step in and it would be a real mess. How did it feel when you saw this actually happening? Yeah, there's a little bit of, there's a little, certainly, a, I, I told you so, uh, did run through my mind. Yeah. So, the, Gary, the, the question was, uh, do you have any specific recollection of what it felt like? Well, I'll let you ask the question. When your, when your awful predictions became true. <laughs> um, well, you know, it's funny. It, my feelings about that have, have um, evolved over time. I mean, you know, at first I asked myself, so is this really kind of a too-big-to-fail problem? There's something else going on here. I think I, I became more and more convinced that at least part of it was a too-big-to-fail problem. And then, um, so then I obviously got concerned that, you know, some of the preparation and so forth that we had advocated hadn't been taken. And then I got, as I said in my remarks, I, I started to feel, well, at least now people do understand what we were talking about, and there's some hope. Uh, for action going forward, but obviously the jury is still out, and we, you know, we'll have to see what how this all plays out. And the, you know, I think the most important thing right now, obviously, is we get through the, we get through the crisis, and then hopefully, we'll get very serious about taking some of the actions we've been proposing, so we don't experience this again, or at least reduce the probability of experiencing this again. Can you be specific about how some of the ideas you're proposing might have stopped this from happening? Like, what would have been different? There would have. AIG would have been forced to break up, or, I mean, or what, or, or banks would have been required to keep more capital around in case of bad times. What specifically might have happened? Well, I mean, I think in some cases it relates to, let's say, the organizational structure of the institutions involved, right? They were organized a certain way, and that makes it very, like they have overseas operations. That makes it very hard for us to figure out what to do, and therefore the only real solution is bailout. We wouldn't have said you can't have foreign subsidiaries, but I think what we would have said is, well, is there a way to allow the firm to get the benefit of its structure, but without whatever specific details are occurring that are preventing us from putting them through the normal resolution framework? But see, but now I want to make you be specific because no, it's easy to. Specific. I'm trying to be specific. I'm, I'm saying, so one thing we're hearing is because of the way that they structured their operations. For example, um, the 
money kept in London flows back to the United States, and it happens at a certain time, and therefore it's difficult to say we're going to do something in the United States because it severs what happens in London, and it makes it difficult to figure out exactly how to resolve the institution. That's a, I think it's a pretty specific kind of case. The firms were allowed to operate in that way because people hadn't thought, well, if they operate in this way and we want to do something later, we're going to run into a lot of trouble. So what we would have, we, what we would have done is we would have uh, had supervisors focused not just on their current condition, but what happens if this institution gets in trouble. We think they would have identified things like this kind of interconnections between the U.S. Um, operation and the foreign operation, and they would have, I hope, proposed specific things that would allow them to both benefit from having overseas operations, but without the technical difficulties that made it difficult for them to be resolved. Yeah, but I mean, it seems to me like some of the problems were just that AIG had credit default swaps and wasn't keeping enough money around in case they all went bad. You know, that's well, not. No, a, I think problem. the issue is that their counterparties, the counterparties, didn't have enough collateral. That's the problem, right? So what we're, I mean, apparently AIG was a one-way writer of credit protection, so they never diversified. That seems like that would be an odd thing, and I think if you were the person who's in charge with thinking about how does AIG get in trouble, it strikes me that that would be one question that you would ask yourself. Now, I, I think. Again, I mean, I hope this doesn't sound too general, but I think right now we don't have an entity, uh, an oversight entity, a government entity that thinks to itself, what happens if this institution gets into trouble and is going to fail? What would we do about it at that time? The primary focus of most supervision is to prevent them from getting into trouble. And I think it sounds like a generic thing, well, just you change your focus. But that's not, that's not trivial. That's important because it's by focusing on what we would do if they got in trouble that this stuff gets revealed. One of the things you talked about was, I don't think the right word is like self-destruct button, but you would like when these companies get into trouble that there would be a way for, it's like when a nuclear reactor starts to overheat, you can scram it, you can put it into safe mode or something. You would like to have a way for these things to fail gracefully. How, how would that work? Well, if you're talking about a, a resolution regime for non-bank, important non-bank financial firms, I mean, what you're trying to do is, is two things. You want to have an orderly wind-down of the organization. So you put it into receivership or conservatorship. Who, you, you put uh, presumably some government, some government entity is in charge, and they begin the process of um, selling off the assets and selling off the liabilities, however that occurs. The really hard decision is, are you going to impose losses on creditors, and if so, which ones, and by how much, and so forth. Now, we've argued that that is an important thing to do under the right circumstances, because that's how you get market discipline going forward. You don't want to do that in the middle of a crisis. I guess what you're talking about doing something in advance to make that easier. You could do it now. It's just a mess, right? Well, what you want to do in advance is you want to put the creditors on notice that they may indeed people have loaned money to this institution that's in trouble. Insured creditors, that's right. On notice that they may indeed lose money of some magnitude if that institution gets into difficulty. Shouldn't they know that already? That's the definition no, of that's it. the problem with too big to fail. They 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 don't believe it, <laughs> and and they don't believe it because there's no mechanism, there's no credible mechanism in place to make that happen. And the reason you want to do that is not because you, it's not equity or anything. You want them to. You, it's, it all has to do with how risk gets priced. If they believe that they will indeed lose something, then their incentives are different than when they believe they'll be fully protected. And if they believe they will lose something, then risk will be priced more appropriately, and that sets up a potential for a virtuous circle, which means that uh, creditors know the rule of the game. They price risk differently. The institutions 
confronts different prices in the marketplace and will take on less risk. It sounds like you're basically saying we're not going to do this again. That's what you're going to make clear to them oh, is no, that no, no, even no, though it happened no, now, we're not, not going to bail them out again. No, no, no. That's not right at all. Doing, if that's all you did, if you said we're not going to do this again, that's not credible. You have to take real steps to make it credible. That's what we're talking about. You, assertions that we won't do this again are silly. Uh, you've got to take real steps to, to, make sh- to, to, to make it, to reduce the probabilities, to reduce the probabilities of doing it again. Do you think you're going to sell the movie rights for the book? Uh, only if I can find a buyer, and I must say they don't seem to be lined up. <laughs> and how the cover, how, what, describe the cover to me. It's a house of cards. <laughs> that's, that's what it is. Hey, Laura, so that, that cover actually is of a house of cards held together by twine and paper clips. Cool. So that is Gary Stern, president of the Federal Reserve Bank of Minneapolis, and Ron Feldman, also at the Minneapolis Fed. And their book is now available in paperback. I think that does it for us today. We'll be back podcasting on Wednesday when Hannah Jaffe Walt is making noises about doing something about what a billion and a trillion dollars looks like on the radio. I'm Laura Conaway. And I'm David Kestenbaum. Thank you for listening. You know I-